You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Prentice is the author of Tuesday Nights in 1980, which was longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction and shortlisted for the Grand Prix de Literature Americana in France. Her new novel is Old Flame. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. I'm so happy to be here. This is such an interesting novel because... You do such a beautiful job of, the writing is really unexpected. I mean, the way it's laid out and the way it's written is is quite unusual. It, it's almost like a series of, uh, if it were a movie, I would say, I would I see it and I experience it in the fiction world as a series of like kind of blackouts, like separate scenes, dissolve through blackness and dissolve back. Was that a deliberate uh, decision on your part that you made before you wrote the novel? Um, yeah, kind of. I really like working in these little short bursts, almost like prose poems. And it's interesting because I'm a, I'm a novelist and I'm definitely not a short story writer. I have tried so many times to write a good short story and I have yet to succeed. Um, so I know I'm a novelist at heart, but I do also do these kind of, um, I think of them as really fun exercises where I give myself like a page or a paragraph and I try to make something combust within that little space. And um, so I wanted to kind of craft a novel that had, that was built of those um, and where I actually ended up pulling in other shorter bits or shorter bursts that I'd written separately from um, from the novel. And I, I was able to pull them in using this format because I had, I was doing these sections that were pretty short. And like you said, um, dissolve in and out. So I pulled from other work, um, which was a really exciting thing to do. Cause sometimes I don't know what to do with those little bursts of writing. And I was able to utilize them here, um, when I wanted to. The character in your novel is Emily mm-hmm. and She's a a writer, works for a department store. And I think this is an interesting choice for you because it immediately puts the reader and the uh, character in a kind of a a meta mode. She's a writer and Mm -hmm. she's writing about herself and also writing about writing, but also she is a character. (laughs) And so we, we are thinking about that and also thinking about you, the writer, because this novel whether or not it is or not it feels the way it's written is it's written to feel autobiographical Mm -hmm. yes um in a total departure from my previous novel and most of my other fiction work uh, this is a first person narrative it's the first time i've ever done this um and you are very correct to assume that much of this is extrapolated from uh, from my real life experience and taken from situations and um, environments that I have inhabited. So I was a copywriter at an iconic New York City department store for many years. 
Um, and I also like Emily, the main character, I also lived in Italy for a year with a host family. And I also spent most of my twenties and early thirties in, um, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is where Emily lives in, in the book. Um, so the settings of this book are really taken from real life, which was a really new way to work. I mean, my previous novel was set in a time period, the 1980s, when I wasn't even born yet. Um, and so I had to, for that book, I did a ton of research. I went to the New York Public Library and looked at advertisements from the 1980s. And I um, researched artists from that time period. And I um, interviewed people. And so I did a lot of work to find the texture of that time. Whereas this book, um, came from, it, it was already living inside of me. These spaces were ones that I knew intimately and that I could reach out and grab the details really easily. Like I could, I knew the exact gross corporate salad that Emily was eating <laughs> at the office. And I knew the, the feeling, the lonely beauty of the porticos in Bologna, Italy, and the, just the details were all there, just sort of swimming around in me. And what this did for me actually was enabled the plot to kind of fly away more freely on its own. And because I had the sort of groundedness of these settings at my disposal, I was able to um, allow the characters to kind of behave and do things that I wasn't expecting um, so there was a, a freedom that came with the knowledge of the spaces, if that makes sense. You know, it, it comes across in the writing. It, this novel feels very powerful. The voice is really, really powerful. And it just sweeps you in and takes you up. As a reader, you're instantly there. And it doesn't matter how different you are from the character. When you're reading this book, you are Emily as a, as a reader. Oh, and, that's and, so cool to hear. And also, too, I think that the power of this unusual structure, the 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 written in a fury scenes, feels really good, and it feels makes it uh, feel like um, almost we are having a conversation with her, like she's our best friend, but also she is the she is us, and that's again gives a whole the whole feel of the novel a bit of a, a meta feel, which is very, uh, it, it, by using this structure, you're able to really immerse us in the emotions of the characters. And, and it seems like, you know, the emotions are over here and separate and real. And over here is where the artifice, the, the narration, the style of narration is taking place. And the collision of these two structures, um, Give, each one makes it, uh, one another stronger. And I'm wondering, so talk about the emotions in this book, which are really strong. I mean, from the opening paragraph, which yeah. is almost too much to bear in a sense, you you launch us into this universe of, of Emily. Yeah, it's definitely an emotional ride. <laughs> A woman in her early 30s, um, what can you expect? <laughs> it's going to be an emotional ride. She's she's going through all the things that a woman of that age has to go through, which is, I mean, the question of not only who to be as a person in the world and as a professional and as an artist, but also the ticking clock of um, 
of being that age and wondering how to lock down your partner and should you have a child? And if you do decide to have a child, what does that do to the aforementioned things, your career and your ambition and your, um, you know, all of your artistic drive. And this, these are all things that obviously I have encountered. Um, I, this was all written when I was a very new mother. And um, so I was feeling and experiencing firsthand the kind of war that was occurring within me of like my female body versus the corporate body and like the, you know, capitalism versus care and the things that really can tear a person apart emotionally, figuring out how to survive in the world as it is, um, as it's set up, which is not set up for women to thrive, especially new mothers. Um, it can really do an emotional number on you. And then you can add in all of Emily's things that I didn't have to deal with, which is the fact that her, her boyfriend is kind of, um, out of reach and she's, she doesn't know if he's right for her. So she's dealing with, um, issues of relationship and love. Um, she goes through a big drama with her best friend. And so there's a real question of, um, of loyalty and friendship. And then um, she also is an adoptee. She, her birth mother died in childbirth and she is, um, she has an adopted, adopted mother, adoptive mother, but she has never felt fully connected to Anne, who's the adoptive mother. And she is kind of constantly on this quest for um, someone or something that will almost devour her in um, emotionally. She wants to be sort of enmeshed with someone else or something else. She wants to be a part of something. She wants to feel things really deeply. And so I think this book is really driven by that quest. Um, she is searching for that closeness in friendship, in relationship, and eventually finding it mostly within herself, but through the process of becoming a mother. Um, you know, one thing about this book, too, it speaks to those subjects so strongly. And part of it is the writing is amazing. The sentences are amazing. It's a book that I read it in part as a, as an ebook. And if you were to look at my copy of the ebook, it's practically all yellow. <laughs> I, ended up, <laughs> I ended up highlighting awesome. everything because every sentence was seemed really powerful and filled with meaning and joy and it was beautifully architected. Do these sentences just pour out of your pen or your keyboard? Um, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they do. Sometimes they come with a lot of effort. Um, I will say that there that I am a writer who uh, goes in and out of what some might call a sort of flow state. Um, and Definitely, I think there is a, the, the most energetic of this writing probably happened during one of those states. Um, and I can never predict with it, when this is going to happen. So it can be uh, a little unwieldy when I'm trying to work on deadline, especially. <laughs> um, but it it's really fun when it does happen, I have to say. It is the greatest joy when it feels like something comes out fully formed and um, like it's been 
dwelling in there somewhere. And like, then it's suddenly on the page and it feels, there's a feeling of authenticity that I really, um, admire about like when that does happen, it's sort of like, there's a a saying that they use a lot in, uh, writing classes and creative writing workshops, which is, um, first thought, best thought, which is like, sometimes when the the thought just comes out clearly and it's the first one you have, like actually changing it, um, can be detrimental because it's, uh, it, it existed as this powerful kind of energetic burst. The process you're describing sounds a lot like birth <laughs> and that's a lot like this book. And, and I had never thought about that till you said that, but that's what makes this book so powerful, I think, is that the fact that the prose feels birth. It, it, it's from, it's sprung from your brow holes. <laughs> and yet the book is also about that process of how things spring from our brows whole. It begins with the birth of the character, Emily, and, and simultaneously with the death of our mother. And, and then later on in the book, Emily herself gives birth. And I think the journey there is all filled with the putting everything in place that will make that possible. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I just absolutely loved the the relationship um, between Emily and her best friend. So talk about that, the, the creating that dynamic, because it's really enjoyable just to read those parts and see people, you know, who truly like, or I guess truly love one another and understand how to play that back and forth. It's a joy to read. Yeah. I mean, I think if this book is a love story, it's a love story between, um, Megan and Emily who are, you know, two female friends, or maybe it's an ode to female friendship. Um, it's, uh, the, the deeper kind of vision there is about wanting to paint a picture of how women support each other and create these really layered, intricate relationships and support systems essentially when those support systems don't exist in a bigger way for them. Um, and then the more, the more kind of fun answer to that question is that I am enamored with, um, the way that women talk to each other and behave with each other. And, you know, I, I really believe that the small stuff in female friendship is like code for the big stuff. Like, you know, the, the witty text messages that you throw back and forth at midnight or like the drinks you get at the bar or the, um, going to going shopping together or telling each other, um, which dress to wear, um, you know, this, these are all kind of codes for love and, um, and they do mean something. Like, I think that so much of like what I'm up against with this book is that it's like a chiclet female drawn narrative. You know, it's a female driven narrative and it's all about women and that men aren't going to want to read it. And I think like part of what I'm trying to, trying to explore here is um, that all of these little things that make up a woman's life and the relationships between women are actually these deep, important things. And 
um, yeah, it's like women trying to figure out how to live together and alongside each other. You know, there's two things. For one thing, I I would identify with with Emily and the way she related to Megan, and I could understand that in terms of the kind of relationships I have with my good friends. And the other thing, you use the word layered, and I think that that is one of the powers of this book. Again, I hadn't realized until we spoke, which is that the kind of blackout structure, these powerful paragraphs, these scenes, these visions, they they fit together really well. They turn into a very pulsive and read, you know page turning kind of narrative but also it's just like they're very thin layers of paint in a you know a big canvas and by the end we see the whole picture of you know this part of Emily's life which is complicated and so talk about these layers would you go back and read your your old like scenes before you wrote the next ones or did you just like hide them away so that they would, the layering would occur naturally. Mm, great question. I don't know if it was so intentional as that, but um, while we're on this subject, I feel like, well, I love the description of it being kind of like a painting. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my dad is a painter and I've, we sometimes talk about the, the what's different and what's the same about making paintings versus making a work of writing. And Part of it is about layering. Um, And I actually, when I teach writing classes, I talk about um, doing layered edits. So I go through the whole manuscript with a certain lens on, and that could be like a character lens or a language lens or a thematic lens. And I do this many times with different goggles on. And um, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like painting in that way where it's like, you're going to start with one layer of color. It's going to be, it's going to have this much depth. And then you're going to have to go back in with another set of colors and deepen it. And I think that um, a lot of the work for, for this novel um, in a layered layering sense was, um, was really painting those male, the male characters in the book. I had sort of originally got, um, I'd originally approached this book as, as a book about women and I'd sort of left the male characters unattended to, um, and not, not really. I mean, it was kind of on purpose. I was kind of like, this isn't their, their story. I'm going to talk about, um, Megan and Emily here. And that's who I want to talk about. I want the, um, I want the, the strong female leads to shine. And then my editor kind of helped me see that actually in, in not rendering the male characters well enough or um, vividly enough, I was actually calling more attention to them. They felt like outlines and they weren't, they didn't feel real. And so I did a lot of layering with each of them and trying to figure out like who they are, why I, I did appreciate them um, and, and giving them some credit. As you were talking about Lauren, I was thinking about a technique. Long ago, I spoke with a, a writer, Clive Barker, and he's also a painter. And we spoke in his in his 
a house and he showed me, you know, his studio. And one technique he used a lot was he'd start a painting and he wouldn't like it. And then he'd just paint over the same thing. And it's called pentimento. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that really informs this. It also is part of the power of how it stitches it all together and turns into one. It's very seamless. And given the format that you use, these kind of, you know, separate scenes, title paragraph for each scene or two paragraphs or something, one might think that the narrative will, you know, it would kind of like feel separate, but no, no, no. It's it's really, you know, like reading a thriller. When you, <laughs> I'm glad you think that. <laughs> but for the fact that there's no violence really, and it, you know, it, it's all about just what you're thrilled with is trying to find out what's going to happen to these people, these characters. And I think with the male characters, I thought you did a, did a good job. We, we know right away who's dodging and what way they're sort of dodging. And they're dodging yeah. in the way that men are really dodgy. I'm, I'm dodgy that way. <laughs> <laughs> that Not way all too. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I think that the, uh, the through line of this with Megan and Emily is really nice. And I love the way... Some of my favorite parts are the way um, Emily will write something and Megan will send a picture back and forth. And that whole part, the texting back and forth, really act as like a cross-stitch in a way from one scene to the next to draw you through the narrative. That uh, conversation between the artist and the writer and it seems like that's something you're well familiar with yeah um i love that you brought that up i actually did a, a reading last night with um the really good friend one of my best friends carmen winant who is a visual artist and she um she and i shared a studio during grad school we lived in a house together in san francisco during grad school and we had this um, sort of like basement room that we shared as a studio. And we, she was making artwork, mostly drawings at the time. And I was making, right. I was in school for writing and we did a couple things together. We ended up sort of, um, sort of accidentally collaborating on a few things. And one of them was this project where we, um, we each took a word and used it as a, um, as a prompt to make a drawing, and at, the, at that time, I was also making some illustrations. And so we did this whole series of illustrations. And then we would often kind of have each other look at each other's work and react to it um, with our different sensibilities. And I really loved the feeling of creativity being part of the creation of a friendship and vice versa, like a friendship informing a creative work. And so I, and I, that's really one of the biggest ways in which Megan and Emily get closer and cross over from work friends, as Emily calls it, to real friends. And they, uh, this, this sort of through line of their creative practices coming together to, to make something together. Um, So I've always just, I've loved the way that friendship and creativity can can come together and make something even more meaningful. One of the the really interesting aspects of this novel is that it's a very incisive and powerful commentary on 
work on capitalism and on, you know, the need to make money and live and just sustain it at a kind of a very bottom line. You have to eat, you have to have sleep, you have to have comfortable places to do that. And I think that what's so interesting about the way this works, it's very incisive, but the way you write is so crisp and clean that you're able to just show the I guess the bars of the jail that we're all that we all live in <laughs> in a manner that we understand to be a jail no matter how comfortable and you know cushy it, cushy it is and that you get to go out to nice lunches and you have a nice chair and you have a good nice you know pictures in your cubicle but you know uh, bars are bars <laughs> yeah yeah definitely I mean I'm I'm actually really fascinated by uh, the the corporation as a thing and the the company that takes care of you um, while not actually caring about you, but it does <laughs> it does actually when you're in that environment. I wanted to speak to the fact that it it actually does bring a sense of familial kind of coziness and it really it's designed to do that you're designed to feel needed and needy of this the space and the people that are there and that design is really fascinating to me the way that um you know they've kind of taken human uh desire to belong to something and kind of put it on in into a company scenario where actually the goal is productivity but um <laughs> you kind of you feel sort of held by that space and I, but I wanted to make sure this is a critique on the capitalist system for sure. But I also wanted to talk about the complications that, that are there, which are that there is real desire involved in buying something and wanting something in, in, in Emily's job, which is creating that desire from language, from writing. She, you know, writes about about cozy sweaters and it makes people want to buy them and they're too expensive, but she finds real joy there. She has, she's enjoying the process of using her creativity in that way. And I mean, I've, I've felt that too. It's really actually fun, <laughs> um, but it's just complicated. Right. And I've had many times where I break down and go, I don't want to use my, my brain to sell things. I don't believe in that. Um, and then other times where I think, wow, amazing. I can make money by doing a thing I love, which is writing puns about genes. <laughs> so it's, it's complicated, you know? I used to do a text for a company that made uh, science tools and toys for kids and adults. Yeah. And I really enjoyed doing it to the point where I would just like, I one time described like a piece of wood you know as just a plain like piece of wood and I turned it into this great science experiment and turned yeah. it into my versus you know just it's to so see what they, what they would do <laughs> <laughs> yeah it can be really fun it's playful it, I mean exactly and that's one of the things that's nice about this book is it's very human you you really get to all you combine you know the playfulness but also you know the out and out threats that that come from from people and i i love the kind of balanced look 
you do a great job with a character named Todd. And you can see, you know, Alexander Skarsgård, I think is the guy. I just saw a movie called The Infinity Pool. And and, uh-huh. and, and he's ready to do that part perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I can imagine. <laughs> it, 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 it's uh, don't see it. You won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that said, uh, you know, he, he uh, does a great job. I mean. A shark is a beautiful creature until it tries to eat you, at which yeah. point it becomes less beautiful. So, so talk about creating a Todd, who, who is a really fascinating character in this novel. Yeah, the way I saw Todd um, was someone who was kind of lost himself, but had come into a fair amount of power in the working world and his work life very early. He's pretty young to be such a high up boss as he is at the, um, in the advertising department where they work. And um, as I think can happen with, with that kind of power, there's also this kind of, I don't know, it's like a complicated fear of that very power, but also like wanting to be able to wield it. Um, And I think So for those of you who have not read the book and are listening to this, Todd um, ends up sort of falling in love with Megan, who's Emily's best friend in the book and, you know, really coming on to her at, at work essentially. And I, I mean, you could call that a me too story. You could call it a problematic power dynamic. You could call it all the things that we would call it. um, If this book took place in a post me too time, which it doesn't, it's right. It's pre me too. Um, but I actually just wanted to explore like the fact that there, that he had real feelings for this person at work. And it was, it was problematic because he was, he had power over her and he was kind of a shark in the water for going for it in the way he did. Um, but he also is, was a deeply lost person. Um, and he had his own family history is uh, deeply fraught and he had to be the quote unquote man of the house um, when his mother couldn't handle the, her responsibility as a parent. And so he's come into this power involuntarily almost, and it's sort of mirrored in his um, work trajectory too. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to paint him as, as an evil person <laughs> for doing what he did. Um, but it is certainly problematic and it becomes very much so for Megan, um, whose whole world it kind of destroys. Um, so, yeah. You know, the, the parts set in Italy were, were also really lovely. I mean, the, you managed to create a feel with your, just your language and your, and your, your style of writing that is just makes us feel like we're, oh, and so this uh, obviously based on your own personal experience there but uh, Renata and her family they are so wonderful I I just love every scene they're in and I think that's again part of the power of this book it doesn't matter who Emily is with we like to see 
the person she's with from her perspective and also how she reacts to them while given the style of Emily's slash your writing um we get to see kind of them from our own perspective and we Emily has her understanding of them and we have our understanding of Emily but also of Renata too and I think that that's makes uh the book quite powerful. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved writing those Italian scenes. Um, it was like, this was written during the pandemic and I got to travel to Italy in my mind again. Um, but I, yeah, again, I wanted to paint the complicated picture of that, that space. Um, there's the incredible beauty and also feeling of warmth she feels from that family um, and connection she has there. And then there's the complication of the loneliness of being far away and the knowledge that this isn't her real family and that there is a, um, a sort of inherent divide between them that she's always reckoning with. Um, and, but despite all that, like the, the, the Italian family, I think is really when Emily feels deeply um, kind of held in that familial way that she's seeking in all these other ways through her work life, through her relationships. And I think when she gets back to Italy, she um, the conversations that she has with Renata really do kind of um, fill her in a way that she seeks in the rest of her life. You know, Speaking of filling Emily, this novel also sets itself a difficult task in that it's about really about mother a mother daughter relationship when from we know from the get go the mother is not there, and so you're writing and Anne is a perfectly fine person and wonderful uh, adoptive mother, nonetheless she's not. Emily's mother and Emily feels that core need and Emily deep pretty deep into the novel gives birth and it becomes a mother herself so there's a kind of a circle here where when Emily gives birth we're taken back to the beginning of the book only this time the mother is there the mother is Emily and I think that that's a really nice way of your writing Emily from nothing towards being the thing that she always wanted in her own life. So it gives the book a kind of like a spiral circle back on itself effect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's the thing that happens when she has her own child where that the, the filling up happens, right? Um, but whether it's be, whether her child is doing the filling or whether she has become the thing that can fill herself. Um, I mean, both of those, th those things are probably true, but she, she becomes different and this, and it's, it's just really fascinating to feel that as someone who has become a mother, um, especially a person who has trepidation about becoming a mother for all of the reasons that we talked about before, personal ambition, personal desire, all of these things, questions around that subject. 
and knowing it will be a mountain to climb because it's not supported. Um, but then the way that it changes you is so real and deep and it's inevitable. You know, you come out the other side, a different person. (laughs) And, um, and I wanted to sort of log that. I mean, I also wanted to track the other thing that happens, which is that you, so you be, you become a really different person on, in, on this deep level. And you also become, your life goes from becoming about your own desires and your own trajectories to becoming a series of logistics, at least for a little while. (laughs) And what was so fascinating to me about trying to write this part of a woman's life into a story was that none of the stuff for story is, is there inherently, right? Like this is circular, repetitive activity of new motherhood. There's no thrust. There's no drive. There's no narrative, um, you know, narrative movement. It's, um, it's this time of kind of torpor. And so I had to really figure out, can I make this moment into art in some way? Can I give it any kind of propulsion? Um, and I, yeah, so I, I, I approached that part with, in a lot of different ways to try to get it to levitate a little bit rather than, um, stewing in itself as it, as it felt in real life a little bit. Well, you know, you absolutely accomplished that. And I think that that's one of the things that is so remarkable about the book is that we see all the parts of Emily's mind just spring into action and parts that she had never before uh, realized existed. And that what, what happens is usually how they all come together in a new the puzzle has a new picture paints a new picture as it were when you put all the pieces back together with these additional pieces yeah and i think that uh, see we feel the thrust of, of emily's creative interests and you know her interests also just in doing good work we see those move forward through the birth and after the birth and i think that in creating that you've done a really unusual created an unusual you know propulsive page turning narrative as to how and and the question is the most basic of all writing who will this character become and that's what we really want to find out and so did you know the end point where she was going to be before you started on the other side of the birth I don't think I knew actually (laughs) one of the biggest, one of my biggest tricks about writing in general is that I can't know or else I won't do it. I won't, I won't write. I have to surprise myself. Um, yeah, some writers are all about outlines and can, you know, can put their scenes together before they write them and work with note cards and all of that. And if I have that, which I've tried to do it many times, um, I, when I know what's going to happen, I don't want to write it. And so I, I have to surprise myself. And that's, I think where, I think that's why this book might feel surprising, um, is that I'm continually every chapter, every section, um, I'm looking for a new way to 
either make myself laugh or make myself excited about something or make myself wonder what will happen. Um, and so the, the search for my own surprise is probably part of what feels propulsive if, if it does at all. You know, it, it, there's many, I was spoken with many mystery writers and it's the same thing. Some people absolutely know who done and some people, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you're like a mystery writer who needs to write the mystery out to figure out who done it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's not an easy way to work. I'll say that it's, it makes it much harder and it makes my process much longer, you know? Um, yeah. Some writers can, if you know, what's going to happen and you can kind of deliver on the, the different scenes and, you know, say on Tuesday, I will write the scene where she goes to the hospital and has her baby. Then that would be really cool. You would get, you would just um, get to have a schedule like that. Uh, but much like getting into that flow state, it's kind of about uh, continually setting new stakes for yourself and um, yeah, keeping yourself entertained. I think it's, you, you talked about the flow state. I think that's really important, both to the pleasure of reading the book and also your ability to, to, to write it because the flow state is what carries you forward. You're a forward carried writer. You're carried forward by a process, not carried forward by the end point. One of the things that I thought worked really well in this book was uh, the the plot and plotting of what happens, and you do a great job of weaving together the past and the present, and taking us forward into the the future. As you said, you did not know what was going to happen. So talk about, you know, as you're going forward, uh, talk about you know making sure that you're looking back enough to know where you've come from which is to say that to make sure that, that the whole thing flows as one piece because that's one of the things that's strongest about this novel is it really feels like you get on a one-lane freeway or it's like, you know, the Matterhorn at, the, at Disneyland. You get on that roller coaster and it's you're going to be on one road uh, no matter what until you get off. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I would say the answer is twofold um, for how this, that was achieved. I would say the first layer of the answer is that the, the book rushed out of me. I mean, it was very different than the process of my first book, which I wrote over seven years and, um, you know, between day jobs and all of, all of that. And this book I wrote in, it all came out within a period of six months, which was the lockdown period during COVID. And this was partially because I didn't have my day job um, to worry about because nobody wanted a copywriting when the world was ending and there was no need for um, advertisements about jeans. So I was pretty much out of work, but I was able to, uh, to dive into this book in this way that has only, I've only ever been able to do before at, um, like an artist residency where I go for a whole month and kind of only focus on that. And that's, I wrote part of my first book that way, but this book really was, it came out like that. It was like all in a rush and it was very, I, I worked in this very associative way 
that I was enabled to do, I think because of what we were talking about before, which is the, the deep knowledge of a lot of these spaces and a lot of the experiences that happen in this book. So I was able to be associative in this way where I could move very fluidly from um, it through Emily's mind. Also, this is the gift of a first person narrator. You can use the, the person's mind to drive you from one thought to the next, which takes you to the next scene, which takes you to the next idea. And you can really use their mind as the train. Um, and so it's, you're able to just shift around in this fluid way that does, that can feel pro propulsive. And then I think the other answer, the more boring answer to the question is the editing process, which is, is the hardest part for me. Um, but which that's like the grunt work. That's like moving the bricks so that the house functions properly. Right. I had to do a lot of that. I mean, when you write in a big associative burst, you're going to have to do a lot of cleanup, um, which is inevitable, very, very difficult. Um, it's kind of like pulling teeth for me, but you got to just, oh, delete the scene, get to the next, try and make it work with this scene. You have to go back and fill in this this person's motivation for this. And, um, and so that's the work that is so worth it because when you do that, well, you can give the reader the gift of feeling like you didn't do, you didn't try at all. <laughs> then it just flowed out of you perfectly. <laughs> uh, which is mission accomplished. You Thank know, you. Uh, Wes is a really interesting character. He's Emily's boyfriend. And from the beginning, as a reader, I'm thinking, seems like a great guy, but there's just, there's something dodgy happening here. Yeah. <laughs> slightly off. I think you do a good, uh, wonderful job of keeping Molly with him while he, while um, we, as the reader, When's it, when's it going to break? When, when are we going to start to see the cracks appear? And so to talk about, you know, that's a, it's a suspense novel tactic in a sense. You know, you, yeah. you're waiting for, for the bad guy to, to twiddle his mustache. <laughs> totally. And he does have a mustache. He's a Brooklyn, Brooklyn boy after all. No, um, it's the, I mean, speaking of Brooklyn boys, it's the classic it's just the Brooklyn tale that I witnessed over and over again. I mean, or maybe it's just the in dating in your twenties tale, but um, I was in Brooklyn in my twenties and just seeing this right and left, which is these men who are, they move to New York because they're following a dream. They have deep ambition. They're trying to become an artist or a writer or a photographer, whatever they're trying to become. That's their priority in that moment. And there isn't the ticking time bomb for them as much as for the women in the situation um, in terms of biology. And so the men are a, a little bit elusive, even when they're not. Um, and there's, I just encountered, and my, my women friends and I encountered so many of these men, so many Wes's are tracking around Williamsburg. For, <laughs> um, and so I just, I, I just, know that story and I wanted to tell it. Um, Wes is not a bad guy in my opinion. No, no, uh, not at all. I think he's just, he really is. He's trying to figure himself out just like Emily is. 
he's trying to um, live his truth, live his authentic uh, life. He wants to be an artist. He wants to be a photographer. And he's kind of doing that at all costs. And he's hanging on to uh, his original dream, which was to be a, um, you know, that classic New York artist living in an artist loft, um, you know, living by his own code, not taking the easier road. Um, and in many ways, but my, my husband and I have tried to do this same exact thing that Wes tries to do. You know, we have moved through um, through life, trying to take the, that road less taken and trying to create a life that looks a little bit different than, um, than it did if we, if we kind of took the sort of more normal job path or the more normal housing path or like all of those things. And so I kind of wanted to paint that picture of what it felt like to try to hold on to something, hold on to a, a previous vision of both a neighborhood and a changing city and a self, an idea of self that Wes has. Um, yeah. The location is, as you mentioned, a really important uh, and a, a character, but I think one of the things you do well by honing in on Emily's perspective so, so with such strength is that it lifts the you're able to mine all the strengths and specificities of a certain neighborhood, yet evoke the universal certain neighborhood. In that, yeah. you know, in a sense, it would not be hard to transport this to San Francisco, to Santa Cruz, to Los Angeles, to totally, and you know, any other place you you wanted to to, to place it. So, talk about you know, evoking those kind, and that's true of all the parts of this narrative. On one hand, it's very specific, and we really love all these individual characters, but I think it has, it really speaks to the, you know, the uh, uh, shadows in the cave. You, you you show us the universal truth, you know, the, the Socratic, uh, yeah, per perfect idols that, that, these are the shadows of the perfect, things that are at the core of stuff. Yeah, this could have taken place anywhere, even in a small town in the Midwest, because it's it's like the Instagram effect of um that has taken over especially just the aesthetic landscape of our cities and towns where you could go in go to any town and be in a Brooklyn coffee shop now because now they all <laughs> look like that. Um, I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by, I mean, just as in my first book, I was fascinated by the changing of Soho in the 1980s, going from these, you know, this place full of squat artist squats and lofts and makeshift galleries and DIY um, kind of spaces into, and, and the, the shift into a commercialized zone um, where, you know, now it's, it's New York's biggest shopping mall and the same exact thing happened to Williamsburg. And I watched that happen as I lived there. Um, of course I didn't get there when it was super gritty, you know, that it's been an artist haven since the nineties, eighties or nineties. But, um, but I, wa I was there in 
a, you know, pretty big pivotal moment when I first got there, it still was the place, the land of the lofts and the, you know, I was just like smitten with this, um, this world of concrete and graffiti and trash and art. And it was, I found it so exciting and it slowly just like, now I go there and I feel just, it's, it's like you could be anywhere you could, you go and, you know, there's the J crew and there's the whole foods and there's the sweet green salad and the pre-ordered smoothie. And, you know, so it's, it, it just is the story of our, of the landscapes of our cities and towns now. And I find it very sad. And, um, you know, I love the Brooklyn coffee shop so much, but I also, I, I miss the, the, you know, tattered couches at the Santa Cruz coffee shop where I used to go in high school and college, you know, like I, there's, there is this kind of, and, you know, and other things too, besides just the, the spaces, it's like, you miss the kind of analog version of life and of making. And I think that um, even just like keeping a journal or drawing pictures or, you know, taking photographs on a camera, all of those things. And I think Emily and Wes are right at that, the cusp of the generation where they had those things and they are, you know, those have slowly kind of faded into the distance of into the past. And now they're, they're living in this digitized shopping mall. I've been speaking with Molly Prezes. Her new novel is Old Flame. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Thank you so much, Rick. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.